Welcome to Purdue Commercial Agcast, the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture's podcast featuring farm management news and information. I'm your host, Jim Minter, Director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture. And joining me today are Nathan Thompson, who's an Assistant Professor of Ag Economics here at Purdue, along with Michael Langemeyer, who's also a Professor of Ag Economics here at Purdue and the Associate Director of the Center for Commercial Agriculture. And today we're going to talk about the corn and soybean outlook in light of USDA's January crop production and world ag supply and demand estimates, which were released by USDA on January 12th. USDA surprised the trade with a reduction in corn yield uh, from the 2020 crop. They pushed it down 3.8 bushels per acre compared to their estimate in December. That was a larger reduction in yield than virtually anybody was expecting. That puts the yield at 172 for the 2020 crop. That's still higher than 2019 when it was 168, but leaves it well below 2017, which was our record high at 177. That reduction in yield pulled down the U.S. crop estimate down by 2.2% compared to the December estimate. So the December crop, or excuse me, the January crop estimate is now 14.18 billion bushels. That's up from 13.62 billion bushels in 2019, which of course was reduced by the uh, planted acreage issue with respect to the weather problems we had in 2019, leaves us well below the record supply, which was a production number, which was back in 2016 at 15.15 billion bushels. And you know, early in the year, we were expecting a much larger crop than what USDA actually uh, for, uh, for provided us yesterday on the January report. If you go back and look at the monthly reports going back to June, in June, USDA was forecasting a 2020 crop production of almost 16 billion bushels. They were at 15.995. And then in July, when crop conditions became a little more clear and the planted acreage a little more clear, they came up with an estimate of 15 billion bushels. But truthfully, if you look at August, in August, we were expecting a crop size of almost 15.3 billion bushels. And now we're at 14 point, in round numbers, 14.2 billion bushels. That's a reduction of roughly a little over a billion bushels since August. That's really unusual to see that large of a drop coming relative to that late stage in the growing season. And I think is one of the key reasons why we're looking at the strength we are. So this has been to some extent a supply driven phenomenon. Although I wouldn't characterize 2020 as a short crop year. Do you agree with that, Michael? Yes, I, I would. I would agree with that. It's just it's just shorter than what we thought it was going to be. Yeah, if you look at it from a historical standpoint, this isn't like a repeat of a 2012 drought, but it is a shortfall relative to what we were expecting earlier in the growing season. So that is one of the reasons why we're seeing this strength in corn prices here recently. If you look at the export forecast, um, USDA did pull back their export forecast a little bit to by about 100 million bushels. Uh, if you want to call 100 million bushel change, it's a little bit. Um, they came in at 2.55 billion bushels, so they were at 2.65. That's well above last year. Last year, we were only at 1.78 billion bushels, and it's still a record high export number. But I think it was interesting that they pulled back that export forecast uh, this early um, in the evidence of actually pretty strong exports so far. So maybe an indication that they think uh, we're going to ration usage with these higher prices. And, uh, you know, if you look at exports so far, total corn ex exports, and this is the quantities actually shipped, not the future commitments, but the quantities actually shipped through the end of December 
have been up 72% versus last year. Um, the rise in exports to China actually accounts for 80% of that increase. So if you look at the numbers, that's a dramatic change in two ways. First of all, historically, we really don't export corn to China. So that's a big shift that China's been picking up. So far, they've picked up 200 million bushels uh, of our corn exports in this marketing year. And then the second thing is that big increase relative to last year still leaves us below where we were, for example, in the 2018 crop year and the 2016 crop year. So keep that in mind when you're comparing the exports this year to last year. Last year was a kind of a shortfall year with respect to exports. But the big news there is probably the movement to China and whether or not we're going to continue to see that going forward. And, you know, Nathan and, and Michael, what do you think about that with respect to future corn exports going to, to China? Is that going to continue or is this kind of a one-off here early in the marketing year? It, it really depends on, on, on the swine herd buildup over there. And, and it's really hard to figure out whether they're, they're close to where they were uh, before African swine fever hit or they're still building. Um, you know, this is certainly, certainly good news. And, and hopefully we will see at least some uh, exports of, of corn to China in the future. Yeah, it's really interesting to see what's going to take place there. China has made some announcements suggesting that their herd rebuilding of their, of their swine herd is actually farther along than I think a lot of people in the West actually think is true. They've indicated their inventories are back to, I think, 2017 levels. Um, I think most of the trade here in the U.S. thinks it's, it's, they have not achieved that level of rebuilding yet. But uh, clearly they are on the march towards a more modern swine industry. And a more modern swine industry is good news for corn and soybean exports from the U.S. and, and from the world in general, uh, because it implies more of a transition to uh, rations that are based heavily on corn and soybean meal. Um, and so that's a shift for their industry, but it's a little unclear as to whether or not the shift has been large enough so far to sustain the kind of growth we've seen to date. So that's going to be a question mark going forward. And it's something we're going to want to watch pretty carefully with respect to what happens to sales and shipments to China. Um, USDA did pull back their ethanol usage number. Um, coming in, they were a little over 5 billion bushels. They pulled that back to 4.95 billion bushels. That's a little bit larger than in the 2019 crop year, but leaves uh, the corn being used to produce ethanol uh, estimate well below where it was in the record year of 2017 when we were at 5.6 billion bushels. So um, kind of a reflection, I think, of what's taken place uh, both in the ethanol market and in the U.S. economy. If you look at the uh, daily ethanol plant margins that are published by Iowa State University's uh, Center for Ag and Rural Development. Those ethanol margins at the plant level have really collapsed since that late October, early November timeframe. Um, for a while there, those margins were up to about 50 cents or more per gallon. Recent data uh, here in December and, and the very beginning of January, uh, we were actually had negative margins were struggling to cover their variable cost of operation. Here the first week of January, they're basically back to a kind of a break even on, on their variable costs, but really no contribution to their fixed costs. So the margins in the ethanol industry have been terrible. And of course the run-up in corn prices has not helped that at all. But then if you look at it uh, from the standpoint of looking at the percent change in, in ethanol production uh, on a weekly basis, that's pretty interesting. You know, in the beginning of 2020, ethanol production across the U.S. was running ahead of the prior year level. And then, of course, when COVID-19 hit, pulled back on uh, gasoline usage, 
dropped demand for ethanol pretty dramatically. All of a sudden, um, weekly ethanol production dropped dramatically. And, and in, um, in April, there were some weeks when ethanol production was running literally almost 50% below year-ago levels. It's recovered substantially since then. But you know, if you look at the fall, there were a number of weeks there where ethanol production was only down four to five percent. And as we got into December and the beginning of January, um, we're down over ten percent now. So instead of seeing continuation of the recovery in ethanol usage that was in production that was going on uh, through the fall, all of a sudden, late fall, early winter, it looks like we're pulling back again, and that's not good news, I think, from an ethanol. Um, consumption standpoint in terms of corn users. And I think that's what USDA was looking at. USDA is also looking at a recovery in the US economy in the latter half of the year. And I guess that's gonna heavily depend on what takes place with respect to um, vaccinations, I think. What, what do you guys have to say about that? Yeah, I think for at least for a few months here, we're gonna, we're gonna see ethanol running below uh, you know, the previous year. I, I, it, you know, the surge in COVID certainly you're gonna be looking at, I think 10%. Uh, 10 percent, uh, uh, a negative 10 percent change, or 10 percent lower. Uh, but but I want you to get into the once you get into the summer, and, and if we get more people vaccinated, I think there's room to room to hope uh, that the economy will strengthen, and and we'll start to see uh, we'll start to see stronger ethanol production. Yeah, the, the weekly numbers are going to be kind of interesting until we get to uh, roughly the middle of March or so. Um, we're looking at year-to-year comparisons that are really pre-COVID-19. Once we get to the middle of March, then we're, let, then we're going to do weekly comparisons to a period when ethanol uh, production was collapsing last year. So we've got a few more weeks where these year-to-year comparisons are still back to the pre-COVID era. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see how that shakes out and whether or not that 10 to 12% reduction we were seeing in late December, beginning of January, if that continues, that's not good news for quantity of corn going into ethanol and, and the run-up in corn prices is not helping those ethanol margins at all. So that'll be interesting to watch that going forward. Well, you know, the, the real goal of the balance sheet, at least from my perspective, is to come up with an ending stocks number. And USDA reduced their projected ending stocks at the end of the 2020 marketing year, going into the 2021 marketing year, by 150 million bushels compared to their December forecast. Um, so that's a pretty big change and, and it was a larger change than virtually anybody in the trade was expecting. And of course, most of that was coming out of the fact that they pulled back the yield number on the 2020 crop more than, than people were expecting. And if you look at those ending stocks uh, estimates, again, they're, they have changed dramatically going back, for example, to if you, if you start the beginning of or early part of the marketing year in June, USDA was forecasting a carryover into the 2021 marketing year of 3.3 billion bushels. As recently as August, they were forecasting 2.7 to 2.8 billion bushel carryover. And then as the fall unfolded, we were progressively pulling down those expected carryover numbers. And now we're down to 1.55 billion bushels. So we've dropped the expected carryover since August by 1.2 billion bushels. And that's a big, big drop uh, over a relatively short span of time. You don't expect to see that big of a shock relative to that August report. And I guess that's probably the key point here. This has been a, a very surprising year from that perspective. Um, when you look at ending stocks as a percentage of usage, 
We're still above 10%, but boy, just barely, right? We're at 10.6% of projected usage. And, um, you know, when I think about it, I start looking at recent history over the last roughly 20 years or so. And the year that kind of starts to stick out to me a little bit is maybe 2013. 2013, ending stocks as a percentage of usage hit roughly 9%. We're getting pretty close to that. We're not all the way there yet, but we're getting pretty close. What do you guys think? Yeah, we're getting pretty close. And obviously in 2013, we have pretty strong corn prices. Uh, and, and so we're getting to that point where, where we're looking at corn prices that could be similar to what we saw in 2013. You know, when I look at these uh, ending stocks as percentage of usage charts, kind of a line of demarcation for me is above and below 10%. When you drop ending stocks below 10% of usage, it can get pretty exciting. And we're on the bubble there in terms of seeing that happen. So I think it's gonna be very interesting to see what happens to exports. Uh, it's gonna be very interesting to see what happens to ethanol usage um, and feed usage, right? And if we see any further evidence of um, strong usage numbers not being cut back, it's conceivable that ending stock number could actually drop below that 10% level. So, well, Michael, you mentioned the prices. Uh, USDA did bump up their marketing year average price forecast by 20 cents a bushel. Uh, this puts it up to 420 a bushel. Those price forecasts have changed dramatically since last summer. Um, but as you look at it, when I, when I think about prices and start looking at history, the year that I kind of start to focus on, as you mentioned a minute ago, was, uh, was 2013. 2013, the marketing year average was 446. And ending stocks were a little tighter in 2013 than currently projected. But you have to think that's a possible target to see that marketing year average possibly bump up a little bit and maybe approach that 2013 level. Um, and that'll be interesting going forward. And that has some implications, obviously. We'll talk about this later. But one of the things we're going to talk about today is uh, the sign up for the 2021 uh, farm program. And of course, those marketing your averages are going to be key in terms of making those decisions. But um, Nathan, you've taken a look at uh, storage opportunities and whether or not we should continue to hang on to the portion of the crop that many of us still have in the bin. So let's take a look at that. Yeah, so, you know, a lot of folks have probably made some sales here after the first of the year and are kind of thinking about, you know, with the inventory that they do have left, um, you know, what, what might be some strategies um, uh, as far as, you know, how, how to market uh, that grain. And so, you know, I, I like to start when we're thinking about, you know, looking at, um, you know, what the marketing opportunities might be over, you know, the, the remainder of the marketing year, just looking at those cash forward contract bids. Uh, at some, some locations that are kind of in central Indiana, close to where we're at, just to get an idea of what's going on. And, you know, when you look at those, it hasn't really changed. We've been looking at these the last couple of months uh, on the Outlook uh, podcast, and, and they're pretty flat, uh, those, those cash forward contract bids. So, for example, for corn, uh, bids throughout the, the remainder of the marketing year, we're looking at somewhere between uh, $5.17, $5.13, um, you know, over the next couple of months. Uh, and again, that's pretty flat. Typically, we would expect to see some, some increasing pattern there as it relates to both spreads, uh, carry in the futures market, as well as uh, appreciation and basis over that time frame. And really, you know, uh, the, the, the current bids that are out there just 
uh, aren't really showing us that given the, the lack of carry in the futures market. And again, a lack of appreciation in those basis bids that are embedded in these forward contract bids. And so, you know, I think we need to think about both, obviously, the, the, the future side of that and the basis, which I'll talk about in a second. But before we move to that, I think what is a useful exercise as you think about kind of grain that's currently uh, in the bin and you're thinking about what you're going to kind of try to do with that here over the, the remainder of the marketing year is kind of, you know, what when you're foregoing a sale, a cash sale today, you know, what, what are you essentially uh, betting on in terms of the price being in the future, given the cost structure uh, of your farm for storing grain, right? So, you know, we're currently looking at um, cash bids, at least, uh, you know, around um, after the report was released and we saw some rallies in futures. We're looking at cash bids of, uh, you know, $5.10 at a, a local elevator here in central Indiana. Uh, and so if you're going to forego that $5 and 10 cent, uh, price today, you know, what would you need to be selling grain for say out into the, the early summer months, June and July, based on an assumed on-farm storage cost of one cent per bushel per month and an opportunity cost of 6% annual rate. And, you know, when you do that calculation, you know, you're, you're going to need to be looking at sale prices of $5 and 27 cents or $5 and 31 cents, depending on if you're looking at June or July. And so, you know, those are those are pretty big numbers uh, when, when you think about it. And so thinking about the accumulation of those storage costs and, you know, what price you're, you're foregoing today versus what you would need to sell, sell the grain for in the future uh, to just offset those, those storage costs. Um, and you could also look at that uh, from a more of a commercial storage perspective, which gives you a, a little bit different um, view of those numbers. So again, I, I just in calculating some um, some potential break-even uh, prices here, I, I assume four cent per bushel per month for our uh, commercial storage. And so again, if you're foregoing that about five dollar and, and ten cent cash price today, you know you'd be looking at probably about five dollars and fifty cents. You know, again into that early summer timeframe that you would need to get in order to just offset the storage costs that you had incurred in commercial storage. And so again, you know, when you think about it like that, it gives you a framework for evaluating and what am I really holding on for? What do I think is gonna happen here in terms of both the futures and the basis in terms of a realistic cash price opportunity in the, in the next coming months? Yeah, and I think that's really helpful. Uh, it, it's, it's something that many of us don't do, right? It's, it's hard to force yourself, I guess, to make those computations, even though you know those costs exist. So. I think uh, kind of thinking about it month by month really does kind of help. And it is a little surprising to think about if you turn down 510 today, you're really thinking about you'd need uh, roughly 550 in July to, to equate for that uh, if you're doing a commercial storage or 530 or so uh, in on-farm storage. So let's take a look at the futures. Uh, the futures market has been pretty interesting, right? It has been. And so, you know, we've been talking about kind of the uh, uh, the spread between futures contracts, um, you know, throughout the fall have been relatively flat, meaning that there's not a lot of carry in the market. Those, those more deferred contracts are not really trading at, at much of a premium relative to the nearby. And again, uh, it's the futures market just sending us a signal that it, that it really wants um, grain now. Um, and so that hasn't really changed. Uh, and so what I thought would be useful, especially given you know, the, the big rally that we saw in futures following the release of the report, is just put into context kind of where we've been in the last several months since you know, this fall and, and kind of where we are now. So you know, in the fall, say back in October, 
you know, we were looking at, at uh, corn futures 370, 380. Uh, you know, after the report this week, you know, futures were up over $5, $5.30, I think, uh, is, is about where we landed after the report. And so that's a huge swing and has some implications for, for some of the, the strategies that I'm going to talk about here in just a second in terms of, you know, those big run-ups in futures prices um, uh, can have implications for, for an, a speculative storage strategy where you're speculating on both the futures and the basis because as much as it can go up, those can be gains to you uh, as the producer. Yeah, and those are pretty big moves in futures. And I guess, you know, one of the things we've been talking about is if, um, depending on how much of your 2020 crop you have remaining to price, um, this might be an opportunity to lock in some pretty good returns. You know, Michael, you're going to talk a little later about profitability, but these are profitable prices for any of our corn and soybean producers uh, throughout the Midwest. And so you want to think about that. And, and part of that decision is going to be how much you've already sold, how much your inventory you have remaining. So if you haven't made some sales, you want to think about it. Um, we also took a look at these 21. We started to think a little bit about whether or not you've done any pricing for the 2021 crop. And Nathan, you took a look at that as well. Yeah. So, I mean, again, when, you, when, you're, when you're looking at these uh, futures prices, you have to kind of peek out ahead and see what's going on uh, in that new crop, December 21 uh, futures contract. And again, you know, the rally that we've seen ha has, has given us some opportunities there to at least start thinking about um, you know, what you're going to do with that 21 crop. So when you look out there, you know, we're looking at um, uh, those December 21 futures, um, corn futures trading for somewhere in the ballpark of, you know, 450, 460, the last couple of days, you know, those are, those are very favorable prices, right? And, and again, I don't think any of us would, would recommend going out um, and selling 100% of the 21 crop uh, on the board today. But you know, thinking about a portion of your crop at those prices, uh, there could be some opportunities to, to get some of the, the uh, some of the 21 crop, you know, locked in at those prices, which according to, you know, some of the numbers that we have would certainly be profitable for most folks, right? Yeah, and I think a lot of our listeners probably are, are in a mode of thinking about the 21 crop, but maybe haven't started doing any pricing yet. You haven't started doing any pricing. This looks like an opportunity you want to take uh, advantage of. You know, if you go back to the, the time frame when the August crop report came out, the these 21 corn futures were trading at about 360. So we're roughly a dollar higher than we were on this contract back in August. And, um, you know, if you haven't done any pricing, you probably ought to be thinking about doing some uh, at these price levels. And you could debate the percentage, uh, but I don't think you want to let this opportunity get away from you. We've taken a look at basis uh, using the crop basis tool on the, on the Center for Commercial Ag's website as well. Yeah, so, you know, we, we talked about the future side. Now we got to think about kind of, you know, the basis side of things. And so if you look at uh, corn basis uh, for a lot of the Eastern Corn Belt this year, so from, from fall 21, or excuse me, from the fall of 2020 through uh, where we are today, it's, it's pretty well tracked, the historical uh, average basis for, for most of that uh, region. And so we're kind of on, on trend, I guess, of, of where we would expect to be in terms of basis. You know, the question that, that's most important is thinking about when, where are we going from here? And again, given that we're, we're kind of following uh, that historical average, the, the research would say that we should kind of uh, expect uh, basis to kind of stay on track there. 
you know, obviously there's a lot of things that could happen, uh, both in terms of um, basis uh, get, getting above that historical average, also some opportunities for it to go below. But the research that we've done uh, here at Purdue, we've seen that, you know, from uh, harvest through, you know, the, about the uh, end of the spring, so into March and April, that tends to be pretty predictable. And so, you know, when you're uh, using the crop basis tool to look at what you think basis is going to be over that time frame, we would say it's probably a, that that historical average is a, is a pretty good forecast of, of what's going to happen there. Um, but as you get out after that time frame, so again into the the early summer months, May and June, um, basis can get a lot more uh, volatile in the sense that it's it's a lot harder to predict. And again, that has a lot to do with what's going on that time of year. So um, you know we've got uh, this kind of uh, transition between you know old crop and then what's going on with new crop in terms of production conditions that can have big impacts on basis uh, in one direction or the other. And so you know as you're thinking about that, you know here over the next couple of months, I would say using the crop basis tool to think about you know building a, a pretty uh, typical you know based on the historical average basis trend in your region would would be a pretty safe bet. Um, as you look out beyond that, you know, I think you want to be a little more careful because there obviously is just more risk, inherent risk, and, and that could be upside potential and it could be downside risk. Yeah, I'd like to encourage our listeners, if they haven't tapped into the Center for Commercial Ag's crop basis tool on the website to do so. Um, it's something you update every week uh, with updated information. You, you take Wednesday cash and futures prices and normally have that out on Friday morning sometime. Uh, so it's a good way to just keep up to date, keep yourself informed as to what's going on with basis. And you know, if you think about it, um, looking at the basis information on the charts, um, you know, there's a tendency for to see some weakness in basis here in Indiana once you get past uh, roughly the first of March or into the month of April. So you know, think about that as not it's so important not only about what's taking place on the futures market, it's also what's taking place in the basis as well. Um, and I guess thinking about basis a little bit, you know, the mathematical definition of basis is just cash minus futures. Um, but it's also a reflection of local supply and demand conditions. And it's really interesting. And you took a look at some other regions and not just Indiana, you were looking at North Central Indiana there a minute ago. You took a look at some other parts of the Corn Belt as well. And, and the, the tool covers Illinois, Indiana, Michigan and Ohio. So you can really look around the Corn Belt and see what's going on. what do you find when you start looking at some other regions? Yeah, so again, you know, um, basis is inherently a local concept and the tool, the basis tool uh, allows you to kind of look around to some different regions and get an idea of, uh, you know, maybe how some of the, these differences have shaken out. And I, I think that the one thing that really stuck out to me as I was looking around uh, here recently has been you know, the, the, the trend down kind of uh, along the river market in, in Southern Illinois and Southern Indiana. And, and it's been a, a very, you know, uh, consistent trend in those Southern regions of, of Illinois and Indiana in terms of, you know, what's been going on. And, and really what we saw was we started off, you know, the marketing year, September, October with, with relatively strong uh, corn basis uh, relative to historical average. It was a little bit volatile jumping around there in October, November or so, but since the middle of November, we've seen basis in, in those southern regions strengthen considerably above that historical average. You know, and, and again, um, you know, I looked at Southwest Illinois, and again, that's just a reflection of, of kind of um, uh, the southern regions across Illinois and Indiana, but 
you know, basis down there is, you know, nearly 25 cents over uh, March corn futures, which is, you know, uh, in the ballpark of, of uh, 25 to 30 cents above the historical average, a really, really strong basis. And so, you know, when you combine, like you mentioned earlier, the cash price is a function of both the futures and the basis. So when we combine what we've seen in terms of rallies in the futures market, really strong futures prices with a really strong basis, I mean, you get some really, really attractive cash price opportunities, especially as we're looking down here, you know, in the southern regions of the state uh, along the river. And so, you know, I think as of yesterday, I was looking and I think that there was cash prices along the river there for corn of $5.50, um, which, you know, nobody thought that was possible three or four months ago, right? That's just, those are, those are really, really uh, high prices. Yeah, and that difference in the basis pattern, uh, it's a little hard to discern exactly what's going on there, but it looks to us like it's reflective of export demand, right? The river markets are showing strength relative to the interior markets when the interior markets are more heavily dependent on ethanol. Uh, the river markets are more heavily dependent on the export channels, right? I think that's exactly right. And, and that's, you know, I would, I would kind of um, use that as a little bit of a, a, a relevant information as you think about basis going forward here, at least, especially over the short term. Like I mentioned, as we get out into to May, June, July, those early summer months, it's a lot harder to predict what's going to happen. But in the short run, you know, I would expect basis in, in kind of the, the central to northern parts of the eastern Corn Belt to, to kind of track along that um, uh, historical average. Whereas along those southern uh, regions, you know, there's a lot more evidence that basis is going to remain strong there as it is currently. Um, and, and again, uh, that just has a, a lot of useful, the research that we've done kind of shows that that, that premium above that historical average is, is going to persist, at least in the short run. So as you're thinking about what basis might look like, uh, different regions, you, you want to keep that in mind as far as, you know, how... That, that continued strength, uh, again, which appears to be driven by some of that export demand, will, will likely persist at least over the short run. Uh, you've taken a look at um, storage returns as well, and uh, there's some pretty interesting information when you look at the speculative storage returns this year, right? Yeah, so, you know, as we were kind of thinking about, you know, what, what's taken place here over the last couple of months, I, I thought it was useful just to go back and put into context a little bit what we've seen in terms of kind of these returns to storage up through this kind of point in the year. So basically looking at a, a speculative strategy where we're just putting grain in the bin in October at harvest, we're not taking any position in the market, we're speculating on both futures and basis and then making a cash sale at some point later in the year. And in this case, I started out looking at basically storing that uh, corn from October to January, where we currently are. And when you look at that return, uh, and again, I looked at a net return. So uh, in, in the speculative strategy, that would basically just be the increase in cash price from October to January, um, minus any storage costs. Um, and again, I think I assumed a non-farm storage cost here of uh, uh, one cent per bushel per month. And again, a 6% APR on the opportunity cost. But when you look at the cash prices that we're seeing currently following uh, the rally in futures after uh, the report this week, you know, we're looking at where we sit today in January of 2021, uh, a, a return, a net return on, on that strategy of a dollar and 27 cents per bushel for corn. So you're a dollar and 27 cents per bushel better off today than you were if you'd have sold corn um, in, in October. 
And, and when you put that number in context of kind of history, I looked at like the last 30 or so years, going back to about, you know, 1989, 1990, that's far and away the, the highest return to this point in the, the marketing year uh, in terms of January, right? I think the, the closest thing would be maybe back in 2007, we were looking at maybe 80 cents or so. And so, you know, a huge, huge return to this point in the year. And when you look at that, it kind of begs the question, well, does that have any sort of um, uh, power as far as predicting where we might be going over the next several months? And so I looked at kind of that same sort of strategy, storing the corn from uh, October, not, not taking any position in the market, but getting it out till May. And again, when you look at it that way, there are some years that are much more comparable in terms of those returns. It's obviously a longer time horizon as far as what the storage was, but there are some years where we see these really big speculative returns, you know, 95, 2007, 2010, are all years where we saw over a dollar fifty in, in again, a net return to a speculative strategy. But what had happened in January in those years was not really um, any, any sort of useful information as far as you know, predicting those outcomes. And so I guess my point in saying all of this is, you know, it's really interesting to think about the, the level of, of increase in, in calf prices that we've seen this year in a very short period of time, uh, but not necessarily, uh, I guess, assuming that that, that increase is going to just continue moving through the rest of the, um, through the rest of the marketing year. And as it's not a guarantee, there certainly is upside potential, but there's also downside risk. You know, Nathan, when I think about the storage returns, you and I have done some marketing workshops here across Indiana the last few years. And, you know, one of the things we've talked about is that storing corn unpriced into the December or maybe early January timeframe, year in and year out, is a pretty good strategy. And, you know, your analysis supports that. But we've never seen a year like this, right? This is, um, I, well, I think you mentioned 2007. The returns so far this year have been roughly 50% higher than they were in that 2007 marketing year. The other thing I think about when you look at the years um, when you have really, really positive uh, speculative storage returns out to the May timeframe, there's only three years that exceed the returns we've exceeded or uh, obtained so far this year. So again, depends a lot on where you're at with your own marketing strategy, but if you have a high percentage of the 2020 crop still in storage, uh, this analysis would maybe support the idea that you should be locking in some of that positive storage return now. And not that you wouldn't want to continue to store part, part of the crop because there is a chance that those returns can improve, but um, that's been a heck of a ride over these last uh, three or four months, right? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I, 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 would, uh, I would reiterate that and say, yeah, I, I think that at what we're seeing in terms of um, uh, marketing opportunities currently, you have to be seriously thinking about making some sales uh, and, and what you do want to kind of hang on to and maybe see what happens here over the next two or three months. I, I think that that would be a relatively safe time frame. Beyond that, you know, I, I would I think there could be some some um, some more downside risk after you get out to that May time frame. But here over the next couple of months, if you wanted to trickle out some and, and kind of hold on to, for some some potential upside, I think that that would be fine. But Certainly, you don't want to be passing up what we're seeing in terms of price opportunities currently. Yeah, I think um, some of the information we've already presented that would suggest how difficult it is to forecast what's going to happen, right? So don't, 
don't get too confident about your knowledge and your ability to forecast what's going to happen these next few months and allow that to uh, take away a, a very profitable marketing opportunity for a portion of your crops. So spreading those sales out uh, makes a lot of sense to me. Let's turn our attention to soybeans. Uh, USDA reduced the US yield estimate again for soybeans. It was only by a half a bushel per acre, but when the supplies are as tight as they are in the soybean market, that's enough to make a difference. So the yield estimate came in at 50.2 bushels per acre. That's up compared to last year. Last year we were at 47.4, but you know, our record yield was back in 2016 at 52 bushels per acre. So you think of it from a trend standpoint, we were pretty much on target with respect to trend, uh, but it was less than, than anticipated earlier in the year. And that yield reduction pulled down the crop size by 35 million bushels. That doesn't sound like a lot, but again, when supplies are as tight as they are in the soybean market, that's enough to make a difference. Um, so we were at uh, 2020 soybean crop estimate of 4.14 billion bushels. That's up from 3.55 in 2019 but leaves us well below the record of 2018, which was 4.43. Um, exports, exports were bumped up again by USDA by 30 million bushels. They were at 2.2 billion bushels coming in. Now they're at 2.23 billion bushels. That's up dramatically compared to last year when we were at 1.68 and in 2018 when we were at 1.75. It actually leaves us with a larger export forecast than we had back in 2016 or 2017 uh, before we started having trade difficulties with China. Um, so far, uh, soybean exports, sh actual shipments through the end of December are up 78% this year compared to last year. And that rise in exports is all really attributable to the rise in exports to China. In fact, a little more than uh, China comes for a little more than the, the total increase. Um, and USDA's, um, uh, you know, if you look back here, going back to say the 2015, I looked at the last, uh, what, the six years counting the 2020 crop. That's the largest export number we've seen here at this stage of the marketing year. And I guess it's important to make sure you're looking at this stage of the marketing year when you make these comparisons. Um, US exports tend to be somewhat seasonal uh, particularly when you look at uh, a destination like China, uh, because as the South American crop becomes available a little later in the winter, uh, the world starts shifting its attention to, to uh, importing soybeans from South America. So big gains now are probably going to be smaller gains later on. So don't get too hung up on that 78% increase. Uh, but nevertheless, it's a very positive export uh, picture. And again, speaks back to what we mentioned earlier with respect to what's going on in the hog industry in China. Um, you know, the reason China is importing soybeans is largely to feed them the livestock and a big chunk of that is going into the rebuilding of their hog herd. And so the uncertainty about just how large that hog herd is, is, is continues to be a, a big deal going forward. Um, if you look at the ending stocks forecast, a little bit like corn, but actually more dramatic than corn, uh, they have changed dramatically since that August crop report. In August, when we did a webinar and, and talked about uh, ending stocks forecast, the USDA was forecasting ending stocks of 610 million bushels at the end of the 2020 marketing year, going into the 2021 marketing year. And they have progressively pulled down that ending stocks estimate as we progress through this 2020 marketing year. And now it's down 35 million bushels compared to just a month ago. 
So the January estimate, 140 million bushels, down from 175 million bushels last month. That was down from 190 in November. In October, they were at 290. So you can see how dramatically this has changed in response to this rapid run up in exports and also cutting back on, on the estimates of the soybean crop size in, in the 2020 marketing year. When you look at ending stocks as a percentage of total usage, um, we're down below 4% now. 3.1% ending stocks as a percentage of usage for the 2020 marketing year going into the 2021 marketing year. That's not quite all the way back to where it was in 2013, but boy, it's getting close. Uh, in 2013, the carryover was estimated at 2.6%. So we are very close to being 2013 tight on these ending stocks. And that's important because as you look at the forecast from USDA, they raised their price forecast uh, by 60 cents a bushel for the marketing year average to 11.15. That's still almost $2 below the 2013 marketing year average, which was $13. And a little bit like corn, as tight as these ending stocks are, you have to think that prices we achieved in 2013 might be the target. And that suggests there might be some upward potential left in these soybean prices as we continue to try and ration the usage going forward. So um, if you look at it on a worldwide basis, the world stocks to use ratios are tightening as well. Now the numbers aren't as dramatic as what we look at at the US level, but nevertheless, they are tightening pretty significantly. On the corn side, world stocks to use ratios as recently as 2016 were 33%. In the 2020 marketing year, that's down to 25%. You compare that to 2013, we were at 23% on corn. So stocks not quite as tight on a worldwide basis as they were in 2013, it's kind of the same story as what we saw in the US market. On the soybean side, of course, I think most of our listeners are aware of how burdensome soybean stocks became when we started having trade difficulties with China. In 2018, we were at 33% carried over into the 2019 marketing year. Now we're down to 23% on a worldwide basis. And that matches the world stocks to use ratio of 2013, kind of providing some more support for the idea that we could see some, some upward movement in that marketing year forecast. Well, Nathan, you've taken a look at the storage situation for soybeans a little bit like you did with corn. So take a look at that for us. Yeah, so again, just starting out with, with some cash forward contract bids is a little bit of a starting point similar to corn and similar to, to what these bids have been here over the last couple of months, really, really flat bids. So again, we're looking at, uh, for the elevator that I went and looked at, a $14.28 bid here in January. And really that doesn't go above that. If anything, it goes down. Uh, and so we're looking at bids of, you know, $14.20, $14.10 out into the early uh, summer months. And again, that, that's just a, a function of um, deferred futures, trading for below what the nearby futures are trading for. So again, that, that kind of inversion in, in the soybean futures market. And then also not really a lot of strong appreciation in those bids that are implied in these forward contract bids. That's not to say there's not upside potential on basis, but the basis that's bid into these forward contract bids uh, just doesn't show a lot of appreciation, a typical kind of you know, uh, improving throughout kind of the storage uh, season. And so again, you know, as we kind of think about those bids and think about some other opportunities here uh, as it relates to, to soybean storage, it's really useful to kind of just put some context on, you know, if you're going to forego a $14.28 uh, 
uh, soybean cash bid today. You know, what are you really, um, you know, expecting to happen here over the next uh, several months uh, in terms of price in order to kind of justify that decision to hang on, right? And so again, you know, I looked at this for both an on-farm and a commercial storage strategy. So in the on-farm strategy, again, we're looking at one cent per bushel per month of on-farm storage costs, which again may differ from, from farm to farm, but that's my assumption. You'd want to kind of build a similar kind of uh, framework based on your farm's cost structure. And again, I'm assuming 6% APR, which again, may be different from farm to farm, but that's kind of our assumption here. So when you look at that, you know, if you forego a $14.28 cash bid today for soybeans, you know, out into July of, of 21, you would need to be uh, expecting a, a cash bid of $14.77 if you're storing grain on farm to offset your on-farm storage costs, right? And that's, that's a, it's a big number, right? Um, and again, you can look at that for a commercial storage strategy. And, and again, that, the number is even higher given that um, the, uh, the commercial storage cost that I'm assuming is four cents per bushel per month. And so again, in that scenario, you forego a cash bid of $14.28 today, you'd be looking at nearly a $15 uh, cash bid uh, in order to be equivalent to that $14.28 today for a commercial storage strategy. So again, as you think about you know, uh, hanging on to grain here over the, the remainder of the crop marketing year, really kind of pencil out uh, what, what you're, you're hanging on for and, and kind of, um, you know, uh, take some time to think about how realistic do you think that, that those prices would be? And again, you got to take into consider futures and basis, what we'll talk about here in a second. Yeah, so it's really interesting to me, and I think really instructive to do the computation. Think about if you turn down today's price, what do you need in the future to essentially match that given your cost structure? And, and you look at two different cost structures, but if you're in commercial storage, 14.28 today equates to roughly $15 in July. And I think that's a surprising calculation for a lot of us that haven't actually bothered to you know, pull out the calculator and punch the numbers, right? So very useful to think about it that way. You've also taken a look at the futures market and that's, uh, that's a pretty interesting story, right? Yeah, so again, you know, we've been kind of just trying to, to pay attention to what's going on here, especially in terms of those futures price spreads as, as they relate to kind of how we think about storage strategies in particular. And again, you know, throughout the, the fall uh, and, and continuing into the beginning of the, the, the new year, the, the structure of the, the soybean futures market ha has not offered a lot of incentive in terms of uh, futures price spreads, not a lot of carry in those markets. Really, the, the market has been inverted for quite a while, quite a while uh, with, with those more deferred soybean futures contracts actually trading below the, the nearby. And so again, what I thought was useful is just take a step back and think for a second about you know, what we've seen in just price level, not, not the spreads themselves, but the, the overall futures price level. And again, if you go back to this fall when we were, we were harvesting, you're looking at soybean prices around $10 a bushel uh, for March 21 soybean futures contract. And again, you know, after the report this week, we've, we've got prices that are, you know, over $14, $14.50, $14.20, $14.15, sorry, $14.20. Uh, and so, you know, a huge swing that we've seen here, and again, in a short period of time, which has really big implications for, for grain that, that folks um, have stored, and, and particularly for that grain that they haven't taken a futures position on. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting chart when you look at it. It's a little bit like corn, but maybe not identical because we've been seeing, uh, seeing a little more ongoing strength 
and the soybean futures maybe than what we saw in the corn. Um, corn had a little bit of a negative day there. Uh, so anyway, as you look at what's taking place here, again, like the corn, if you haven't priced any of those soybeans from 2020, uh, don't let this get away from you. Um, there's a story out there with respect to maybe things could get tighter, and, and a lot of that revolves around uh, really two things. One is what's taking place in South America. Uh, we're going to know a lot more about that over the next few weeks with respect to how large or how small their harvest turns out to be, and we're just getting some very early harvest reports, but uh, USDA on this report didn't change their forecast for Brazilian soybean production. They kept that uh, even at 133 metric tons. Um, and as you look at the Argentine situation, they did pull that number back a little bit. I think they pulled it back 2 million metric tons. So a small change there, but um, you, how much do you want to bet on what's going on in South America, I guess is kind of what I would think about. And the other thing obviously is what's taking place in China and how rapidly their exports uh, or imports would switch from the US to South America. So those are a couple of wild cards out there, but uh, these price levels look relatively attractive. So you want to be careful about letting them get away. And then you took a look at uh, new crop, right? Because there's an opportunity there as well. Yeah, same, same as with corn. I mean, when you're, when you're looking at those prices, you got to peek out here ahead and look at the, the November 21 soybean, the new crop. Uh, and, you know, it, it's currently trading for $11.90, right? And you compare that to you know, back, um, you know, not long ago, that, that contract was trading uh, this summer for, you know, 850 or so. Uh, so, you know, that's a, that's a huge swing. And I think that you got to be a little bit careful here. You know, you look at that 1190 for the new crop relative to what we're seeing kind of in the nearby contracts. Obviously, it's not, not nearly as high. But Michael, I know you're going to talk to us in a little bit about some of your income projections for, for 2021, where you're using these new crop futures prices you know, those are well above a lot of folks break evens, right? There, there's profitable opportunities at that level. That's definitely the case. And, and uh, the case farm, for example, has a break even price of under $10. And so, and then there's a lot of people in that situation. So, and so these, these are good prices. <laughs> there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. Yeah. You know, Nathan, if you look at uh, the time frame when the August crop report came out and look at that November 21 soybean futures then versus today, um, you know, those prices are roughly $3 higher than they were back in the middle of August. And so again, um, could they go higher? Sure. You know, if you have a shortfall in, in South America, very strong demand from China, both of those factors would propel prices higher from current levels probably, but there's no certainty that that's going to happen. And so you want to be careful about letting that opportunity slip away. And another thing I think that you're going to talk about maybe a little later, Michael, is the fact that we're going to see a swing in acreage, right? Yes. We're going to see relatively large soybean planted acreage this year. And so before we get too far into the 2021 year, uh, we're going to start to see some impacts from expected sh shifts in acreage. And as you start getting in the planting season and, and a bit beyond, obviously with the yield costs, that's on. So, uh, think about that as you're thinking about your marketing strategy. But for many of our listeners, if you haven't done anything for the 2021 crop, now is a pretty good time to think about it and maybe make a move on at least a small portion of your production. Nathan, you took a look at basis on soybeans, both uh, here in Indiana and, and some other markets as well. 
Yeah, so again, you know, the, the basis component is really important here as we're thinking about what, what the cash bids are looking like. And so, you know, starting out just kind of a baseline, uh, North Central Indiana, um, you know, which is reflective of, of what we've seen really across the, the Eastern Corn Belt is we, we've had strong soybean basis going back to, you know, the uh, um, spring of 19 when, when we had planting issues. And that has persisted throughout the 1920 uh, crop marketing year and, and followed in here to the 2020-2021 uh, crop marketing year. And so, you know, we've got basis levels that uh, are, uh, you know, 20, 30 cents above the, the historical two-year average, which is what we use when we're looking at, at soybean basis. And so again, based on our research, is, is, is you're looking at, you know, where basis might be heading uh, here <clears throat> over the, the near term, we would expect that that, that premium uh, above that historical average, so that, that kind of strength in basis to continue, um, uh, at least over the short term, again, as you think about getting a little further out into the early summer, maybe May and June, again, basis gets a lot more difficult to uh, forecast. There's a, just a little more volatility. And again, there's a lot of reasons why that is, again, the shift from old crop to new crop and, and, and what the new crop conditions are looking like and have big impacts uh, on that soybean basis. And so Again, over the short run, I would be looking for continued strength in soybean basis. I, I see no reason to, to uh, expect a, a strong reversion to that historical average, at least in the, the short run. But as you look further beyond that, I would be a little more careful uh, as you think about uh, what, what your expectations of basis might be this summer. Now, again, I, I think that there are strong upside potential uh, for, for soybean basis. If, if there are people who need soybeans later this uh, summer, they're going to probably be be offering some some pretty or potentially be offering some pretty high prices, and so some people you know may may do well there, but there is downside risk, and so you need to be kind of careful there, uh, as far as you think about um, you know what what sort of strategies you're going to be implementing in that summer time frame. Yeah, you took a look at that I think maybe in a previous uh, program, Nathan, and and one of the things you discovered was there was the potential for some very positive basis moves but the risk is high, right? So you, your question is how much of your uh, production would you want to allocate to that strategy? And you need to be careful about that. Yeah, exactly. It, it depends a lot on the, the individual and their risk tolerance. And, and um, you know, again, foregoing uh, some very, very um, attractive bids today with strong futures and strong bases already, um, you, you got to be careful there. So I also looked at basis um, in some other kind of parts of parts of the, the Eastern Corn Belt there, just, you know, again, basis being an inherently regional concept, local concept, uh, it, you know, it's not the same everywhere. And so again, similar to corn, if you look along kind of the, the Southern regions uh, of, of Illinois and Indiana, along that river market, we've seen a similar basis pattern uh, for soybeans as we've seen for corn. And that is again, starting out the year with a relatively strong basis compared to the, the historical trend. A little bit of volatility at harvest in October, November. Uh, but then since the middle of November, just you know, really, really strong um, strengthening basis uh, along that Southern uh, part of the, the Illinois and Indiana there. And so you know, we're, we're currently looking at, at soybean basis that's 25 cents over, uh, again, that March 2021 soybean contract, which again is, is 45 cents or so stronger than what the, the historical two-year average is showing. And so again, 
Strong futures coupled with strong basis is offering just some, some really attractive uh, cash price opportunities for so folks that are willing to move some grain. And a little bit like corn, Nathan, I think the strength in these Southern Indiana, Southern Illinois markets is reflective of strong river demand. That river demand is, is likely driven pretty heavily by what's going on in the export channels. So if we see some loss or some weakness in the export side, if there's a big transition, for example, in China, to moving towards importing from South America, um, it wouldn't be too surprising to see those river market basis levels soften, right? So you've taken a look at the speculative returns to soybeans as well, and that was pretty interesting analysis. Yeah. So again, just just briefly here, because you know what what we take away from this is 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 a little bit just kind of putting into context. So I looked at the the speculative net returns to storage for soybeans for two time frames from from October to January, which would kind of represent where we are currently in the marketing year, and then from October to May to represent holding on uh, to that grain uh, for a little bit longer. And again, I looked at that for, for a long, uh, a number of, of crop years, right? And when you look at what's going on in the current year, so in 2020, if you had stored soybeans in October and you were ready to, to make a cash sale uh, today at what cash prices are, you'd be looking at a net return to that uh, strategy of, of $4.19 a bushel. So you're $4.19 better off today than you were uh, with an October sale which again, it's just phenomenal when you put it in the context of what we've seen over the last 30 years for that same strategy repeated over and over. You know, the, the highest I think I'm seeing here is maybe a little over a dollar per bushel uh, in 2007. So four times uh, higher than anything we've seen in the last 30 years. And again, it's just a, a function of the, the phenomenal rally in futures that we've seen here in the last three or four months as coupled with strong basis that we just talked about. Uh, has, has given us some some really favorable opportunities. Again, to kind of kind of put that into a little more context, comparing that with what we see for that strategy uh, of storing uh, speculatively from October to May, there are certainly some years where we see some some really uh, high returns to that strategy. So again, 2003, we're looking at two dollars and forty one cents a bushel. 2007 was three dollars and sixty one cents. 2010, two sixty six. So again, those are at least in, in the same ballpark of the, the $4 that I'm talking about here in 2020. And again, you know, using kind of th these numbers to, to make any sort of uh, forecast of what to expect here over the next couple of months is, is difficult. There, there's not a lot of predictive power in, in these numbers in the sense of we don't see any strong trends where you know, years with really high returns uh, from storing till May had some sort of trend as far as what happened in January uh, doesn't doesn't seem to be any sort of um, a relationship there, but nonetheless it just puts what we're seeing in terms of a cash price opportunity today uh, for soybeans into some historical context and, and provides a little more context as far as you know if you're holding on for more here over the next couple of months it certainly is possible but it would be you know phenomenal in terms of the historical uh, realm to get much higher than, than we currently have. Yeah, it's really interesting, you know, excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me. you know, Nathan, um, you looked at this historically, and, and I, I remember I, you know, going back over the last 30 or 31 years, I think there's eight times when that speculative return to May has exceeded a dollar a bushel, and we're at four times that this time. That's one thing that's, that's 
kind of interesting, and we've already got it you know, here in January. And the other thing about that is um, speculative returns to storage for soybeans is a better bet than for corn year in and year out. If you think about a long-term strategy, do I want to routinely store some of my crop uh, unhedged, uh, just flat price storage uh, out into the May timeframe, um, year in and year out, that's a better strategy for soybeans than it is for corn. And if you look at the this, this, this situation this year with how tight soybean stocks are, I'm inclined to think, you know, if you're trying to choose, do I want to store some soybeans out into the spring or do I want to store some corn out in the spring? I'd probably lean towards soybeans because of how tight the stock situation is. Um, not that I would, <clears throat> not that I would, for <clears throat> excuse me, not that I would forego the opportunity to sell some soybeans at these prices, but if I was kind of trying to choose between the two, I'm probably a little more favorably disposed towards the soybean side because of how tight the situation is. What, what do you think of that? Yeah, I think that I would, I would agree with that. And I think I would, I would couple that with, you know, kind of some of what we're seeing as far as what's going on in South America and what that could mean uh, as far as what happens with soybean prices here over the, the next couple of months. Um, you know, I, I think that based on, like you said, the frequency from, from a historical standpoint, uh, and, and what we know is currently going on with, with the stock situation here and, and, and some potential uh, issues down in Brazil, um, you know, you, I, I would probably agree. I would, I would lean towards the soybean side of things. But again, you know, not necessarily foregoing any sales today, making some sales at, at current prices and maybe trickling out over the next couple of months to kind of leave yourself some upside potential uh, if, if we do see some more increase here. Yeah. And with the caveat, of course, that that storing past the end of May is is quite risky. Yes, absolutely. You got it. You definitely, as you get out past that time frame, it becomes a much different story as far as the, the level and the amount of risk. All right, Michael, you've taken a look at uh, farm income projections based on the case farm that you maintain uh, in your records for uh, North Central and West Central Indiana. Before you start, you might kind of remind us a little bit about that case farm. Yeah, the case farm has 3,000 acres. Uh, you know, about about a, a third of it is owned, uh, but it's it's corn and soybeans, and so it's 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 a corn soybean farm. Uh, you know, it produces the uh, 1,500 acres of corn and 1,500 acres of soybeans every year. Another thing with the case farm is the marketing strategy is is quite simple. I uh, harvest half half of the corn and soybeans before the first of the year and half uh, after the first of the year, and so that's just to make the calculations. Uh, really simple. I, I need to probably uh, look at some of the strategies that uh, Nathan was talking about and see how those would impact uh, the numbers that I come up with the case form, but I haven't done that yet. But not surprisingly, given the strength in corn and soybean prices, particularly soybean prices since uh, early September, uh, the net farm income in 2020 is much higher than what it was in 2019, and 2021 looks even better than 2020. Another thing uh, uh, that's remarkable about 2021, in 2020, we received a, a pretty sizable uh, a chunk of money from the, from the government uh, in, in terms of the, the CARES Act, uh, the, the different, uh, the different uh, CARES Act uh, legislation, whereas in 2021, uh, at least right now, I'm not anticipating any government payments. And so even with that caveat, uh, 2021 is even stronger uh, than 2020, and so uh, we're looking at some uh, some pretty good returns for 2021, and and they're not they're hot. They look like they as of right now that they're even higher uh, than 2013. Not as high as, as what we saw in 2019, 
2010, 2011, and 2012, uh, but even higher than 2013. And so that leads me to talk about uh, profit margins. Uh, just to put this in perspective, uh, if we look at the profit margins from since 2007 for this case form, they're right around 17%. Uh, that would put this case form in the top third in terms of uh, long-term profit margin. So it's a fairly profitable form. I set it up that way. Uh, but but the, the main point I want to make here is the, is the profit margins in 2020 and 2021 are above the average from 2007 to, uh, to, to 2021. We had some really good years there from uh, 2007 to 2013. So that's saying something. And the main reason I wanted to talk about the profit margin, uh, Nathan and Jim, is, is the fact that these profit margin for 2021 is calculated, uh, assuming that you're gonna take advantage of these strong prices right now, and you're gonna sell some of the 2020 crop in the next three months, January, February, and March, and uh, that you're going to you're gonna start thinking about pricing some of your 2021 crop to take advantage of some, some pretty strong prices, uh, potential prices for that for that new crop. Uh, and so that leads, uh, leads back to what Nathan uh, was talking about earlier, perhaps thinking about marketing strategies for that 21 crop to take advantage of these strong prices that we're seeing right now. Yeah, looking at that uh, profit margin ratio, Michael, you're currently projecting a 21, uh, 2021 profit margin of, of roughly 25%. And um, there haven't been very many years in the history of that case farm that were higher than that. As you pointed out earlier, 10, 11, and 12 were higher than that. I think 07 was higher than that. Uh, but that's a pretty good profit margin, right? So that's something- Yes, it is. So try to preserve that as, as much as possible. We've also taken a look at cash rent and net returns to land. Yes, and, and, and not surprisingly, if, if net farm income is up pretty strong, net return to land is up pretty strong. And when you compare that to cash rent, uh, you know, for the first time in quite a while, uh, the 2020 net return to land, and this continues into 2021, is higher than cash rent. What does that mean? Yeah, how much upward pressure is there uh, in cash rent, given that rent return to land is higher than, than 2021? Uh, first of all, it's important to remember that it takes it takes several years in a row of high net return to land to cause some uh, upward pressure on cash rent. Uh, and another thing to remember is, is that 2021 cash rent uh, was negotiated probably in, in, in uh, early fall uh, of 2020 before some of the price increase uh, that, we've currently, that we currently have uh, was, was uh, materialized. And, and so uh, 2021 cash rent is gonna be higher than 2020, but it's probably not gonna be that much higher and so let's talk a little bit about 2022 cash rent. I think there is some upward pressure on that cash rent, but one of the things that I look at to kind of gauge how much upward pressure there is, is to look at, is to compare 10-year average cash rent to 10-year average net return to land, and they're almost identical right now. And so in my mind, and at least in 2020, we were in equilibrium, where there wasn't a lot of pressure to increase or decrease cash rent, uh, having said that, however, if we continue to see strength in, in prices in 21, and that continues into 22, uh, if we're, if, for example, if we're looking at uh, net return to land, uh, that's 25 to $50 above cash rent. That's not what I'm projecting, but if, the, if that would materialize, uh, then we would see more, a lot more pressure to increase cash rent. So the bottom line, I think uh, we're just looking at it right now, uh, there could be a, as much as a 5% increase in cash rent uh, in 2022 compared to 2021. 
Yeah, and I think it's important to keep in mind, Michael, when you talk about cash rents, you're really talking about forecasting the average cash rents, not necessarily the peak cash rents that people might hear about it, but perhaps a cash rental auction that's going to take place here. There'll be a few of those take place over the course of the winter. Those are going to be a little different, but when you look at the average cash rental rates, uh, things tend to moderate quite a bit because of long-term relationships. And as you mentioned, a lot of those deals were negotiated earlier in the year. And obviously, quality of land is also going to be important. I mean, uh, yeah, usually what happens when you see fairly strong net return to land is you see more upward pressure on the high productivity land. Exactly the reverse is what you've probably seen on the way down. Uh, when you had low net returns, there's probably uh, just as much pressure uh, on the high productivity land as there was on the low productivity. But when you're looking at stronger net return to land, just giving the cost structure uh, between low and average uh, and high quality land, you're probably seeing a little more upward pressure on the high productivity land. Yeah, good point. Well, you've taken a look at caution people uh, when they're thinking about planning decisions here uh, for, for the 21 crop uh, is, is, is we've had this large increase in soybeans. And so the natural question uh, to ask is, is soybeans look like the soybeans look like they're going to be substantially more profitable than corn. And my short answer is no. Uh, we're not looking at a situation like we saw in 16, 17 and 18 and in 2020, for that matter. Uh, you couldn't predict that, but with uh, we didn't know soybean prices were going to increase as much as they did relative to corn. But when you look at the 21, uh, you know, price price uh, prices, uh, you're looking for the new crop, uh, looking at the new crop futures, uh, there doesn't seem to be that much difference in the profitability prospects or the net return prospect for corn and soybeans. And so uh, that leads me to say that I don't think we're going to see a lot of second year soybeans uh, in Indiana uh, for in 21. And I don't think it, it makes sense to have a lot of second year soybeans. Of course, that does vary depending on what, where you're at in the state. Uh, we tend to have more uh, second year soybeans on the east central, northeast Indiana uh, compared to the other parts of the state. But but it looks to me like the, the profitability is going to be similar uh, for corn and soybeans. However, I think it's interesting to point out that that changed recently, right? Because you updated your estimates following this uh, World Ag Supply Demand. That 3.8 bushel decrease in corn made corn considerably <laughs> more attractive to the tune of $25 to $30 per acre. Uh, and, and so, yes, it corn, corn, corn looks a lot better uh, in the last week. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out over the course of the winter as people are making their final planning decisions. The trade's been expecting a very large increase in soybean planted acreage this spring and been some talk here recently about whether or not we might see an even larger increase in soybean acreage. And what's what's your take on that, Michael? I think in Indiana, we've been we've we've had more soybeans than corn uh, the last several years. I, I still think, like I said last last year at, at, at this time, that I, I expect about 50-50 corn and soybeans in Indiana and, and more soybeans and corn in Ohio, but that's typical for Ohio. I think where you're going to see the changes is in the Western Corn Belt. I think we'll see less continuous corn in the Western Corn Belt, and there'll be more soybeans on some of those uh, continuous corn acres in the Western Corn Belt. That's where the soybean acres will come from, in my mind. Yeah, good point. Well, uh, farmers have to think about signing up for the Farm Bill for 2021, and that deadline is coming up pretty soon. March 15, 
you've taken a, a short look at that. It turns out the decision is not going to be too hard for most producers. That's the good very reason. simple decision. Let's just let's just reiterate what the PLC prices are and and, and think about uh, think about uh, those levels compared to what Nathan was talking about earlier. Uh, the corn PLC price is three seventy. Obviously, twenty twenty and twenty one uh, twenty one price is probably going to be it looks like it's going to be higher than that. Uh, PLC price for soybeans is eight forty. Eight forty. So that's considerably below uh, where we're currently at. And then wheat, uh, you know, wheat is five fifty. Uh, you know, the, the prices are higher than that uh, for U.S. wheat prices, but not that much compared to, to corn and soybeans. And so, uh, and so, like as you said, Jim, this is going to be pretty easy. And the reason it's going to be pretty easy is uh, when we were looking at uh, nineteen and twenty, we were recommending uh, uh, to look at a PLC program for corn and wheat and Arc County for soybeans. We're not changing those recommendations. Uh, uh, you know, doing some calculations, it appears that PLC is still attractive uh, for corn and wheat, in particular wheat, uh, but still attractive for corn and wheat. And Arc County is attractive for soybeans. Uh, the Arc County for soybeans, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon because of the extremely low PLC price. Uh, corn, uh, you know, we look at 2022, that may change uh, because that, you know, got, uh, cause, uh, uh, we're, yeah, but we're, but for corn, there still is, you look at the new crop uh, for corn, there still is a chance uh, that that price is going to drop below 370. Um, that's not the, you know, that's not the, the, the best case or the best case or the worst are the, are the most likely case. Uh, but certainly there is a chance, a non-zero chance uh, that that corn price is going to drop below 370. And so, and so PLC is attractive, still attractive for corn, uh, though if we would forecast using most likely prices, uh, we would forecast no PLC or our county payments. Yeah, so I think a couple of points as we kind of wrap up here, Michael. One is, I think there's some confusion about this. When you sign up this year, you're signing up for one year. You're signing up for the 2021 crop year. I think some people thought maybe this was a multi-year sign up. It's not. You sign up for 2021. So you don't have to worry about forecasting, you know, two and three years out into the future. That's the first point. And then the second one is, um, given current pricing relationships and expectations, we don't think that there's going to be any ARC County or PLC payments made. And your budgets kind of reflect that. And, and you were talking about that earlier, but I wanted to kind of redirect that, that point. Um, and, and for the vast majority of people that are listening to this podcast, it's probably making the same choice that you made last time, which on the corn and wheat side is the PLC and on the soybean side, ARC County. And so it should be pretty straightforward for most people. There's a few a few exceptions to that. I think you looked at one exception where um, our county might make sense for corn, Michael. You might mention that. A scenario where the, the corn price would end up above, slightly above 370, uh, 370 to 420, for example, and low yields. Uh, you know, it, it, would take, it would take a combination of both of those things. And so typically when we do budgets, when we're looking at uh, you know, future decisions like this, uh, we assume trend yields. Even under trend yields, the Arc County doesn't look very attractive, uh, even with with the 370 to 420 price. Yeah, so I still think because there's a because there's a there's a chance that corn's going to drop below 370 for the 21 uh, a crop year uh, that that PLC is the better choice for corn. So put it another way, there's a mathematical possibility that Arc County could be better than PLC. Yes, it's just it's not a very high uh, probability. Yeah, 
Well, if you think about a, a low, if you're betting on a low yield scenario, typically on a broader basis, that would imply stronger prices. So anyway. Yes. Um, yes. The natural hedge that we typically have in the Illinois area. betting on a very unusual scenario. It's yeah. mathematically possible, but very unlikely, at least in our perspective. Yeah. So, and then we have crop insurance for the low yield scenario. So good point. Well, that kind of wraps up our discussion for today. Um, I encourage you to share the Purdue Commercial Ag Podcast with your friends and colleagues. And on behalf of my colleagues, Nathan Thompson, Michael Langemeyer, and the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture, I'm Jim Minert. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Our next Crop Outlook webinar will be on February 10th, following USDA's February WASDE update. We hope you join us for that. Thanks for listening.